Good morning and welcome to the services of the Travis City Church of Christ. This is April 26th. We're glad for the opportunity to come into your home as this pandemic continues. We want to look at this as an opportunity in ways for the gospel to go out in ways that we have not considered in the past. So we count this a joy and a blessing to have been given this time for us. I can only imagine how many living rooms, dens, offices, and what have you have been turned into recording studios for just such an occasion. We want to consider that even in the book of Acts, as persecution was going about with the church, it tells us that the spreading of the gospel did not stop there. It only spread out. So they saw the opportunities then, and we hope and pray that we are seeing the opportunities today. As in past weeks, the songs that have been selected for our service today have been emailed out to you, and I hope that you have gotten that, have downloaded them, and are able to see them. Our first song today is, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Bear me through the swelling current, lend me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises I will ever give to thee. Songs of praises I will ever give to thee. Let's go to God in a word of prayer. Our Father, what a joy and a blessing it is to come to you at this time, bringing our cares, our concerns, our thanksgivings, and our praise to you. We come to you at a time that is so troubling, not only in our country, but around the world, as people are unsure of the future. But Father, we know that you hold the future in your hands. You know how this will all end. We pray that hearts and minds will be open to the message that goes out continually of the saving grace that you have given us through your Son. And we pray that people around the world and leaders of nations will turn to you for wisdom and guidance and instruction in this time. And Father, we pray that as we go into our service today, that all praise and glory goes to you through your Son, that all that we do is in keeping with your word as we come to you in spirit and in truth. For it's through your Son, Jesus, that we bring this to you. Amen. We selected a song before the Lord's Supper this morning, O Sacred Head. 
O sacred head now wounded, with grief thy shame weigh down, now scornfully surrounded, with thorns thine only crown, how art thou pale with anguish, with sore abuse and scorn. How does that visage languish, which once was bright as morn? What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? Oh, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to Thee. We find that not only in Scripture, as we have an example from Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, that the Disciples had gathered together on the first day of the week to break bread. But we are told that as often as we do it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul spoke of the directive that he had gotten from Jesus about the Lord's Supper. We find that was actually what, what took place as we read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So we find that during the Passover, after the Passover supper, that Jesus had instituted a new supper that disciples from then on would partake of. And as often as we do it, we declare his death until he comes. Let's pray for the bread. Our Father, we thank you at this time as we take of the bread. We thank you that we're able to remember this and that you've given this as a directive for us, that until you should return again, we remember that your body was given that it was shed upon the cross. We thank you, Father, that you loved us so much to give us the best of what you had. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We find in like manner that he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's offer thanks for the cup at this time.
Father, what a joy and a blessing it is to know that you have instituted a new covenant of grace and mercy. We thank you that you have given this for us, that we may proclaim it and declare it and partake of it in this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We find also that Paul gave a, a directive in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It is separate and apart from the Lord's Supper. It is not part of the Lord's Supper. During the first century, there were several famines that went about. And as Paul gives us a directive, it is not the same famine that is spoken of earlier in the book of Acts. But this continued that on the first day of the week. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. We have this as an example for us even today, that on the first day of the week we set something aside. In a time that is so different from what we are used to, Normally at this time, as we would gather together as a congregation, we would pass around a basket or some sort of container uh, so that people, as they had prospered the week before, on the first day of the week, they give back as they have been prospered or God has blessed them. At this uh, day and time, we have made avenues that are available. People may mail them in, but they may also go to our website. This is not an advertising. We don't expect people who are hearing this for the first time that we are not asking for money, but this is simply a directive that has been given to us. Let's offer thanks for that privilege. Father, you have blessed us in so many ways, in ways that we cannot count, in ways that we cannot even comprehend. We thank you, Father, that you have done this for us. Let us each consider at this time the things that you have done for us and blessed us in this life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Before our service sermon, pardon me, begins, and that passage is being taken from Luke chapter 16, we're going to sing one song to set our minds and hearts perhaps in the right place as we consider the words of this song as we sing and make melody in our hearts, teaching one another. The song is, Take My Life and Let It Be. Take my life and let it be Consecrated, Lord, to Thee Take my moments and my days Let them flow in ceaseless praise 
Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with message from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou choose. Take my love, my Lord, I pour, at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. As I mentioned, our sermon is taken from Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We know this typically as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And I'd like to read it in its entirety before we begin. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It may be slightly different from the version that you use, but the context is still the same. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers." so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The account of Lazarus and the rich man is one that is that contains opposites. It rep represents the best and the worst 
both here and in the hereafter. While death and the afterlife are still mysterious in many ways, this passage answers some very important questions, enough so to cause us to reconsider some very crucial parts of our lives should they need to be corrected. And I'd like to consider three different areas that are covered within this, and they are covered in a uh, what I hope is a very logical pattern here, is that as we begin to, to look at this, we look at, uh, in the first three verses, the best and the worst of times. And so we find in the, in the beginning that, we're, that we talk about Lazarus and the rich man. For it tells us there was a rich man. We find that as it is described, the things that he has, it tells us that he was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously. Everything about those three things, actually four when it calls him rich, that clothed in purple meant that this purple cloth, which was so very expensive to buy, that only the very wealthy could afford it. So he was, at the very least, rich, but he also could have been of royalty, because purple was often found by those who were of royalty. And he had fine linen. Again, his clothes, that they were the best that money could buy. And feasted sumptuously. Not just feasted sumptuously, but feasted sumptuously every day. There was nothing apparently that was lacking in his life. So we have the very picture of wealth and affluence here with this rich man. And then we have the opposite which we find that at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. And as much as we are given a description of the rich man and the things that surrounded his life, these things that are used to describe Lazarus's life depict the very opposite, the very worst in life. For it tells us that he was laid at the gate of the rich man. He was covered with sores, and he desired to be fed what fell from the rich man's table. All he wanted in life because of his hunger was just the scraps, anything that could fall from the table, the very leftovers, the least of what the rich man could afford here. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. Everything in this picture depicts a pitiful sight with this man. There's a couple of things that we, that we might notice as we begin this, is that we call this a, a parable. It doesn't tell us that this is a parable, but most scholars agree that this is a parable. What sets it apart from most other parables is the fact that this is the only parable that mentions a person's name. And many have connected this person's name, Lazarus, with Jesus' friend. Lazarus, whom later he would resurrect from the dead, whom he had set in the, uh, in the tomb for four days that he brings back from life. There are many, many things that run parallel to that, uh, which are not part of our story, so I'll leave those. But it is worth something that you would, uh, at your own leisure and study, study the comparisons between those two. Uh, but as we look at this as a, a parable, 
And some perhaps might disagree that this is a parable because it is the only time that a person's name is mentioned. And some of the things that are mentioned in this account are very, very much a departure from other parables that Jesus had uh, given the people. So we find the, the opposites here in this first part of the rich man and Lazarus. And as far as to the end that the rich man was with everything about his life surrounding him in luxury, the very opposite is true of Lazarus. We find that there are things that we might look at that uh, in Lazarus' life, we find in Luke chapter 5 and verse 18, uh, it was very typical for someone who had to be carried around because they were so weak or crippled that they could not get around on their own. In Luke chapter 5 and 18 and 19, it says, uh, Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. Uh, also in Acts chapter 3 and verse 2, as Peter and John are getting ready to go to the temple for the hour of prayer, it says, A, a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. So this was very typical. We may think of uh, in our own current society, if you go to larger cities, even small ones, that you may see people who are crippled and lame, uh, very ill, who uh, depend upon the kindness of strangers, or uh, is the uh, New Testament calls it alms, or those things which were given as an offering for the poor. They did not have a what we might think of as a social security system at the time. They did not have uh, Medicare. Uh, in that sense, uh, but they had a system built into the law in which those people who were too poor, too weak, too sick were to be helped by those. We find that in the rich man, we are not told specifically that how he got his money was by anything that was illegal. We aren't told that the rich man uh, had any allegations of wrongdoing or immoral living, or some vice contained therein. All we are told is a description of his lifestyle. But later we're going to find something about this lifestyle that ends up costing him in eternity. So as we look at these things about the, uh, the, the rich man and Lazarus, we come now to the the section which I'll call that the first section being the best of time and the worst of times. The second section I'd like us to look at is found in verse 22 and 23 when it says, when our time is up. The first part being the best of time, the worst time. Then when our time is up. Verse 22 tells us that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So each of the two, the rich man and Lazarus, go the way of all the world, as, as our modern saying might be. Uh, they have an appointment with death, as we all do. Both of them die, and we find that the quite the opposite is going to be found here. So in the the poor man died. And notice there is no mention of a funeral. 
And we may read into this simply because of the fact that it tells us that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. But it tells us the rich man also died and was buried, a, uh, a luxury that was afforded by those of wealth and money. They were able to afford a funeral, and funerals were very costly at the time, as they are in this day. And the more money one, one would have, you would typically expect that that money would be used uh, in a funeral. So it tells us he, was, uh, he died and was buried. We find that in Hades, and, and this, is, this is where our story really begs to have things defined for us. We find that this term Hades, uh, we, we may uh, look at this and think that he is in the realm of the dead. For some of your versions may see he lifted up his, uh, the, pardon me, the rich man also died and was buried and in hell. But the Greek word is Hades, and there are two different uh, differentiations here that we want to look at and notice because they are very important to our story, which as it unfolds, we will understand better. For it tells us that he lifted up his eyes in Hades, and Hades is the Greek word which means the realm of the dead, and much the opposite of what we find in our modern culture or something that is depicted in our, uh, our modern movies and media is that this place, the realm of the dead, is not the final resting place, neither for those in torment nor for those who are going to be rewarded. And we will see this as we, uh, as we continue on. That in this, in this instance, that he, is, uh, he has lifted up his eyes in Hades, and he is in torment, the rich man. So when our time is up, we will go to one of two places. Now, you may think that according to what we have been taught, either by tradition or by the invention of man or simply by default of what people hope for, that there are many possibilities. And some will think that that, that will teach and very popular in, in some religions is that we will be reincarnated in a different form. And depending on how good we have lived this life, if we come back as a human, that would be a punishment. But if we come back as perhaps as a plant or an animal, that is raising up until the final time when we are reincarnated. The scriptures do not reveal that to us. The scriptures teach a much different fate. As Hebrews 9.27 tells us, it is appointed to man to die once, and then the judgment. So the fact or the thought that we will keep coming back time after time is not taught in the scriptures of the Bible. And the fact that we may think that when we die, we would come back as a spirit who roams the earth until it's such a time as we can make amends for whatever we have done, or we will haunt people. This is not taught. And unlike some of our modern culture movies of which uh, the, uh, the dead will wander around eating other flesh, uh, again, things that are not taught, although it is good entertainment, uh, or so Hollywood would like us to believe, uh, it is nothing like that is taught in our scriptures. But we find that there are two fates that have been given for man is that there will be a place of torment, there will be a place of reward. And as much as we want to think that everyone 
is going to go to heaven and find reward according to our parable here, and not only here, but other places as we will see, uh, that God has at His disposal and as His Word teaches us, there will be two destinies of the soul, one in punishment and one in reward. So is this, uh, uh, when our time is up as we have spent, uh, we, we find that the rich man is in Hades, and we find from this that he's in a place of torment. We come to that final part. It says, when the time for deeds shall be no more. So as we mention in Hebrews chapter 9, and verse 27, it tells us that it is appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. Is that when we die, our time to prepare for eternity ends. There will not be a time in which we are said, well, let's go back and get a second chance. And this is very popular even within some doctrines and creeds of Christendom. We find that there is even a doctrine that tells us uh, from the creeds of men that they are to baptize the dead so that they will have a second chance. Well, that is not taught in Scripture. And again, we want to hold as close to the Scriptures and exactly as the Scriptures teach us. Because there is much that God has to tell us about this mysterious realm of the dead. He doesn't tell us everything, but He gives us enough that we may realize that there are things that we can do while we are yet here on this earth to determine which place we want to spend eternity in. As we come down to the last part, when our time for deeds shall be no more, there is a sense in which the rich man is aware of his memories, and many questions abound as to, will I recognize my loved ones in heaven, or in that place of reward, or in the place they might call paradise? We're given a sense here of which he calls out, beginning in verse 24, that he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. So he is aware. He is a Jew by birth. He is part of that Israelite religion because he calls him Father Abraham. It is interesting to note that many times in the New Testament when someone talks about Father Abraham, they are those of the Pharisees and ruling class who call Abraham their father. And this would be uh, very common at that time. So the rich man calls out to Father Abraham. He understands and recognizes Father Abraham. He has a memory of who this Lazarus is. We don't know how many times he walked by this poor, pitiful soul that laid with sores, longing to eat. How many times he passed him by, but he knew who he was. So there's a sense of which there's an awareness of pain, there's awareness of memories, at least in this realm of torture and agony in Hades. By the way, if you received an email from me yesterday, uh, you will find an interesting chart that was passed out by the World Video Bible School. And it is an interesting chart that gives in a, in a visual chart, in one view, a picture of all of, most of the things that are going to be talked about here, uh, but in a much expanded uh, manner. And if you'd like that, if you did not receive it, let me know, and I'd, I'd be glad to get that for you. So he says, uh, uh, 
that he not only has the recognition, but there is a sense of which he feels pain and anguish. He says, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in... Here's two things we want to notice. He is in anguish and he is in a flame of fire. Many people who mock Christianity will say that Christians believe that this place of torment is simply something uh, that has been taken from Dante's Inferno. But we find that this uh, idea of flame is something that is talked about several times by Jesus Himself. And if the Son of Man tells us that these are the things that will happen, then we know that they are true. I can't describe you of what the temperature of those flames are going to be, what color they're going to be, or how far it stretches. All we are told and all we need to keep in mind here is that there is a place of anguish in this. Now listen to the reply. Before I do that, uh, yes, let's go to verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. So this memory that, that Abraham is calling upon him would be something that he would be able to utilize so that the rich man understood that there was a time in this life in which he had good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is in comfort here, and you are in anguish. So we see that there is a sense of which there is anguish in a place of torment, and that there is comfort in a place of, and we're going to refer to this as paradise now, and I'll bring this out uh, because it might be a term that you recognize or even have used, but we're going to clear this up. Uh, just a little bit. Uh, let's go to verse, uh, well, first of all, let's, let's go to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11 and 12. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. Uh, lest we think that this is a fanciful idea that, that Jesus in this parable is, is just throwing something out there. It is based in something that Jesus has actually described in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8. Beginning in verse 11, we're going to read verses 11 and 12. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus describes that there are two realms here, that there's going to be a place of outer darkness uh, and... Uh, whether it be weeping and gnashing of teeth, but there's also going to be a place, reclining table. So he describes a place that is much better and is quite the opposite of that place where it will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's turn now to Luke chapter 23. In Luke chapter 23, we find that Jesus is on the cross and in something that is very misunderstood. Number one is that many people have used this as a case to say, see, the thief on the cross needed to do did not need to do what we need to do today in order to be saved. Uh, but I'll go into that at another time. But the one thing I want to con concentrate on is, beginning in verse 39 of Luke chapter 23, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds." But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What I'd like us to concentrate here on is verse 43. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today 
you will be with me in paradise. And some people have misunderstood this paradise as meaning you will be with me in heaven. And the fact that Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, cannot be heaven because Jesus is going to be into the realm of the dead or Hadean realm or Hades. Uh, some versions have misinterpreted that as says uh, when Jesus died he was in hell, but he was only in the realm of the dead, this same realm of the dead that we find that Lazarus is in now. The realm of the dead, this is called paradise. And that final eternal resting place is not the paradise that is being talked about here. If we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and many scholars believe that this is the first letter that Paul wrote. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul is addressing the church at Thessalonica. And Paul responds many times to questions that were asked. If we go to his letter to the Corinthians, we will often find that he will say, and, uh, and now for this, as he, as he deals with questions that are being asked. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and verses 13, beginning, we're going to read five verses. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. When he speaks of those who are asleep, he's talking about those who have died that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with, with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then those who are alive who are left will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So Paul describes this process in the briefest of descriptions uh, here for us. Uh, there's many things we say, well, well, Paul, couldn't you have given us more to go on here? But he sets in the most basic principles in, in believing that those who had died were going to miss the resurrection and therefore would not be with them uh, in eternity. But Paul says, no, this is not the case. He talks about those who are left whenever the Lord comes back. And even Jesus says, the Son of Man does not know that hour. So if you have people that tell you, I have signs to know when the end of the world is, do not believe them. Because they would then know something that Jesus, the Son of God, who now sits at the right hand of God, does not know. How can they know it when Jesus doesn't? So, uh, we do not know when that day will come, but Paul assures us that those who are dead will be called forth from the grave. And if they are already in that eternal dwelling place, this can't be. But Paul sets up this order of things that are going to happen uh, in this. But this realm of which people are now in, that paradise realm or a place of comfort, they are still awaiting that judgment day. If you'd like to turn to the brief letter that we know of as Jude, First uh, John, Second John, Third John, Jude, Revelation. So it's at, towards the end of the New Testament. In Jude chapter one, reads very much like a passage we're also going to read from Second Peter just before that. But Jude chapter one, verses six and seven. Jude is going to describe, and Jude is the brother of Jesus tells us, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, 
but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude tells us here that there are angels who left their position of authority. Those, uh, at whatever time this was since the creation of the world, they left their position of authority, and now they are being held in uh, eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. And that judgment is not going to be several different judges down throughout history, but judgment is going to occur once. For, to, for it is appointed for man to die once, and then the judgment. Even as we look at what Jesus described as when He divides the sheep and the, uh, and the goats, the left and the right, He talks about one judgment. We only read of one judgment in the Bible. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verses 4 through 6, we find very much the same thing that Peter describes that Jude does. Peter writes, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4, read three verses. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and this is a term Tartarus, it is a place of torment, very much the same as what is happening to the rich man, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So there is a time in which they are being kept. Then there will be a day of judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of ungodly, if by turning cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So here we find again that Peter, in the same way that Jude describes, that angels are being kept in a gloomy place until eternal judgment. So there is this realm, not only of, uh, of gloom and punishment, but also of paradise, uh, of which Abraham is going to describe for us here. He tells us, we come down to verse 26. He has described that in, in this life, uh, previously the, he says to the rich man, you lived a good life and Lazarus had bad things. But now the opposite is, and now Lazarus has good things and you are in a place of torment. And as the rich man has said, send, the rich man says, send Lazarus so that he can give me a little comfort. Just dip his finger so that he can cool my tongue. I'm in anguish. But he says in 26, and besides this, Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. So here we have the, a further description of that place of eternal punishment, and we also have a place of comfort. He says, A chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And a very apt description. Uh, we come back to, if we go to the Old Testament, and David is recorded as saying in 2 Samuel chapter 12. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 22, we find that, uh, just a little background to the story, that, that David and Bathsheba have, uh, have had an illicit affair, and as David's punishment, his firstborn is going to die. We find that he has died. We pick up the story. He said, David said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me 
and that the child may live. But now he is dead. And pay close attention. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So we have a consistency in the scriptures that tells us that those who have died are not going to come back to this world as much as those who deal in the spirit world and seances and Ouija boards want to believe that the spirits are talking to us. We have here that tells us that the dead do not come back. The dead do not communicate with us. Uh, consider what Job says. Job chapter 7, 8 through 10. If there's one who knows about suffering, it is Job. It says, The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. Will your eyes, while your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol, and Sheol is the same place that is described as Hades, the realm of the dead. So he goes down to Sheol, does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. So we find that the dead go to Sheol. They do not come back here. As we continue on, when the rich man realizes that he will not have comfort, he comes to a conclusion in his own mind that he does not want those who have survived. We don't have an idea of the uh, of the time frame of which this takes place. We don't know how long after Lazarus and the rich man, how long after this. Uh, but that is not necessarily the important part of this. But the rich man says, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. So this place of torment that the rich man is in, he realizes that whatever the time frame is, if his brothers are still alive, he does not want them to go to that. And further, he wants Lazarus to go back. But there is a gulf that has fixed that the dead cannot go back to earth. And there's such a logical procession that is going to take place here that Abraham tells him. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. So we are apparently in the time frame, though we don't know the exact date and time, but we are in the time frame to where the law of Moses is still in effect. He says, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It is a sad commentary in two ways as we look at this and we bring this lesson to a close in a few moments. That Abraham is able to say to him that the law, and the Mo the law of Moses and the prophets were sufficient to bring people to a recollection and a recognition of which they knew the things that they should be doing. And as a way of retorting against that, he says, No, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. 
If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There are a couple of things that, that we want to note here is that the things that we believe that people will respond to are often insufficient. We think if we can just do great, great deeds of miracles, that that would be enough to bring people to a sense of repentance. This was not true in Jesus' day, and it will not be true in this day. If we, even to the, the greatest thing that we could do is to bring someone back from the dead. Oh, that might bring temporary, but ultimately it is not enough to convince people. He tells them that the Word of God that existed for them, the Law of Moses and the Prophets, was sufficient for those to know what they need to do. And so it is today that the Word of God is sufficient. The miracles that were performed in the first century in that time were to give evidence, to be signs that those people who were preaching the Word, who were taking the Gospel out, were sent from God. And when the last apostle died and those whom they had laid their hands on died, that realm of miracles ceased. And the Word of God, more powerful than a two-edged sword, able to divide even bone and marrow, is sufficient for us today. And the reaction to that. Many other things were written as we read in the Gospel of John, but these are recorded so that you may have the Word of God. How sad it is as we bring this to a conclusion. But I would like to read what is perhaps one of the more definitive descriptions of this life after death. While it does not answer all of our questions, and, and, and all of our questions will not be answered truly until we step foot into eternity, then we shall understand. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm only going to read just a few verses. The entirety of 1 Corinthians 15 does a, a, great, uh, a great service to answer questions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's Paul's argument, if people have not been raised, if there is no resurrection. But now notice the language that he continues on in verse 19. If, uh, pardon me, verse 20. But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 
The last enemy to be destroyed is death. We're given a great description here that says that there is a resurrection of the dead and there will be a judgment day. There will be a time when we will be called forth from the grave. And in that judgment day, all things will be settled. And those who are now in the place of torment in that Hadean realm will go to their eternal punishment, that there will be a judgment, so that that judgment, that penalty may be made to them once and for all. And those who have been waiting in this paradise will then go to that eternal place of rest with the Father. What will our bodies be? We don't know. But we know that it will be wondrous. And so as we have briefly looked in such a short time at this parable of Lazarus and the rich man, it is enough to give us pause to think that it is sufficient to tell us three things. That the stewardship of what we have been given. It also tells us that the urgency of preparing for eternity. And as well, the choice we have of determining the destiny of our soul while yet in this life. Which will you choose? From what we have gathered, the rich man was not an immoral person. We are not told that what he gathered by wealth was gathered by fraud. But what he neglected to do as a steward of those things which God had given him is he neglected to take care of those things with the riches he had been given, those who were poor and needed him most. So as we end this and consider that we will spend one of two places, our eternity in one of two places, it is evident from this story that the place we really want to spend is in eternity with the Father. We hope that you will make that choice. Make that choice by faith. There is a great day coming, and we want to be prepared for that. We want to be prepared in a way that we are told in the Scriptures we should be, and believing that Jesus Christ died and was raised again for our, to pay that penalty for our sins. He rose again to show us that there is life after death. And believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He died for our sins, we must make those steps. We must confess Jesus as Lord, repent of the life that we once lived, and turn to Him. And that last thing which puts us into Christ is baptism. Those things which we have spoken of so briefly here. If you have questions that you have and would like to know more about it, we would encourage you to contact us. that We may study with you. I've chosen a song, There's a Great Day Coming. There's a great day coming, a great day coming, there's a great day coming by and by. When the saints and the sinners shall be parted right and left, are you ready for that day to come? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? We thank you for joining us this day. and We hope that this has been a blessing to you as we have 
shared this time in the Word of God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you so much that you have given us this day. Thank you for the time. We pray that hearts and minds will be open to things which have been spoken, that we might make amends for those things that we have done in this life to prepare us for a life of eternity with you. May hearts be softened, may minds be open, and ready to receive your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.